and welcome to the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast, brought to you by the Pre-Raphaelite Society. Today, I'm really pleased to welcome Jordan Welsh back onto the podcast show. Hello, Jordan. Hello, Carl. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing very well. Very happy to be here. Thank you. Good. So, last time you were on the podcast, you spoke with Alex and myself, and we we spoke more about the process of studying for a PhD in pre-Raphaelitism and perhaps we thought it'd be a really good idea to have you back to sort of showcase your actual research itself and what you do so perhaps for those that haven't heard that episode would you just like to introduce yourself and just tell us a bit about your research? Sure, sure. Yeah. So um, my name's Jordan, obviously, uh, and I am a final year PhD student candidate um, at the University of Essex. And my research in a kind of cheating kind of way is not purely pre-Raphaelitism. It kind of covers the Romantic period and Victorians. And it looks at the idea, the concept of nature and religion and how that's portrayed from people like Samuel Taylor Coleridge, early romantic in the 1790s, all the way up through the Victorian era into Christina Rossetti and the pre-Raphaelite movement and into um, the Victorian poet and priest Gerald Manny Hopkins. So it looks at how they portray religion and nature and, you know, by the time we get to the Victorian period, we get industrialisation, the cities change, so you've got Coleridge the rural poet and then people like Rossetti and Hopkins who are very much within the city and see how places like London um, and and with Hopkins further afield as well how the cities impact um, people's lives and how and how life kind of changed how do you find nature and religion in in those kind of circumstances so geography and and place and space sort of is looking at how those influences are are impacting our understanding and our portrayal of what nature and religion is during that that kind of 100 year period so that's that's essentially what the research is well, there's lots in that George. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I'm gonna have enough time to write about it let alone know anything else but it, it feels very it feels very complex sometimes but then I don't know if I'm explaining it in a way that perhaps sounds more complex than it is <laughs> So are you sort of using nature as a concept to bridge between Romanticism into the Victorians, into the pre-Raphaelites? Yeah, I, I mean, certainly with, with people like William Wordsworth and, and, and Coleridge, there's a real interest in, in, in preservation of, of nature and how nature is so important to, to well-being and, and how rural surroundings in their time was under threat through things like the agricultural revolution, great changes of the, of the cities, the railways coming, you know, what is the railway from London going to do when it reaches the rurals of Somerset, you know, uh, and there's a great fear of that, you know, people like Wordsworth write poems about protesting against the railways coming to the Lake District because it's going to bring evil and horribleness to the air, it's going to change that way of life. So there's a kind of fear of, of tension between what is rural and, and kind of outside influences, that traditional way of life, um, particularly because you, you kind of see that within nature, there's a spirituality, you know, whether it's God or whatever you want to call it, there's something special in there that inspires you, that makes you feel good, that makes you feel calm, that 
um, gives you belief in something, whether it's just the belief in goodness of people or, or what have you, um, there's something in nature that's actually quite inherently positive. Um, and I think that's what you see within the romantics. And I think by the time you get to people like Rossetti in the Victorian period, it is a case of finding nature, but perhaps on a smaller scale, you know, is it's just simply the parklands that are kind of the little pocket parks that appear in the middle of, you know, in really industrial areas. And actually the nightingale singing, in, you know, in, in, in the squares or, or, or the birds, the trees or, or Hampstead Heath or something just suddenly sparks something and reminds you of, of, you know, there is nature out there and actually there is something positive about that. And, and certainly, you know, following things like the COVID-19 pandemic and things, we all understood the power of what nature can do for our kind of well-being, our mental kind of goodness. Um, so I think there is something to be said about how there's this tension within the Romantic period. But by the time you get to the Victorians, there's a different kind of attitude of well, how do we how do we see this in 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 a very urban environment that's filled with poverty and you know growing expansion of of, of places and people it gets busier and busier, but you can still kind of find these pockets of tranquility to kind of just ground yourself in, which I think is really really remarkable in some ways. As you, as you know, I study Gothic fiction of the Victorian period, sort of alongside the Pre-Raphaelites. Hmm. There is a a big body of sort of gothic theory on on the city and how how that's impacted on sort of nature and how that's changed how people live and how people associate with the landscapes around them and yes you do get that sense of like incoming threat and incoming danger and crime and poverty is there perhaps a sense that the romantics and the pre-raphaelites they appeal to nature as a antidote to this or is there a, a juxtaposition between the, the two in some ways i think that there is i think there, there there's definitely almost a kind of culture shock because mm -hmm. if you see people like the the romantics you've got coleridge who's very anti-city he doesn't like it when he's educated in the city he hates it because he cannot see the stars when he's in you know he's in his, his the the, the boarding school that he he has to study at and he wants to be in the country and and to kind of run run free as it were it's very idealistic and you know a bit naive I think in sometimes his approach whereas you kind of see something different by the time you get to the Victorian period and, and something that I'm working on at the moment in, in my research with Gerard Manny Hopkins is when he goes to which is quite laughable um in, in what he writes when he goes to places like Liverpool and he goes to Liverpool and he says it's dirty it's disgusting it's dull it's uninspiring you know he's he, you know he likes his poetry and he goes to Liverpool and he basically finds that Liverpool does not inspire him to write poetry because he finds it so dull and so dark I think the line that he uses is in Liverpool you cannot see the sun because it is so grimy and and and, and dirty and smoke-filled and everything and it's really fascinating to kind of see that he's trying to find something in in those cities and this kind of man-made industrialization has taken that it's stripped it away for him and he he just cannot find something good to say about it he's very critical about some of these cities in the north um that he visits and you can kind of say well this is the kind of um snobbery that he has to kind of low you know 
southern England kind of middle class nature or is this simply because he's so amazed that what you think you should see the sun in the sky you can't see it because there's something impacting it the high-rise buildings you know of big factories and smoke and, and everything and, and whether that's actually stripping people of that benefit of nature and I think we see that with with the pre-Raphaelites this kind of sense that well wasn't it kind of better in the old days you know this kind of purer sense of well, what art can be but look at how they 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 idolize the impact or the influence of of nature and 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 you know a kind of rural way of life we love our kind of you know the the, the plants and the pomegranates and 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 you know the leaves and you know whether it is a failure in the lake but look how interesting the lake and the leaves and everything is in, in that kind of way and you don't get that in this very industrialized smoky dirty kind of urbanized environment in, in that same kind of way so i think there is a kind of what i find quite interesting you've got people like Coleridge who who wants to kind of avoid the city but once people are in the city there's a kind of romanticization of what the countryside is yes because it's like oh suddenly once you're in the city you long to see what that's like and you know we see that now people live in the city and many people go oh, I want to live in the country now I want to relocate so we kind of everyone's moved out of this in out it always feels like people moved out of the country into the city and now we want to do the reverse and kind of go back. And there is this kind of almost fetishization of what the country is. And you, I know a kind of random way of thinking about it is when you look at something like Midsummer Murders, the TV series, it's lovely, quaint villages. And doesn't it look lovely and chocolate box and ideal? But the really brutal stuff happens in those villages, you know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we kind of forget that because, oh, isn't it lovely and quaint and beautiful? And, oh, I'd love to live in that cottage over there, despite the fact that literally the whole village is filled with murder. But suddenly we don't care about that because we like what this countryside kind of represents, even though there's kind of dark undertones that perhaps we have blinkers and we kind of forget that that exists sometimes because we think that the country is is better in, in those kind of lights. So sort of like... A manufactured image of the picturesque because I think it wasn't that quite a big thing in the romantic period when you're looking at the landscapes that were painted of sort of like you say the beautiful countryside villages yeah. a peasant leaning on a fence and it was the reality you know the, the reality is it, it's probably very hard work in the countryside up to your knees in mud in the Victorian times and Exactly. I think it I think it is a sense that it paints a picture that people go, oh, isn't this you know really lovely? This is what the working classes are like. You know, they're leaning on the shuffles, but they're not doing anything kind of that. But it is backbreaking labor and it is sweaty and it's it's dirty and and, and it's dangerous in some cases. You know, it actually could injure people, it could kill people. It, and, and it's a hard life, and it's a life that despite all the effort, there's still huge amounts of poverty. It's still not enough to kind of uh, uh, to kind of do that so I think there is a, as you say a kind of sense of, of manufactured nature and I think even when you look at country house designs if you kind of you know from that kind of period sort of late 1700s early 1800s when you get people like um, Capability Brown um, who, who's designing big country estates so you know people of wealth 
but it's it's designed wildness you know it's it's the trees are in a location because it makes the view look better so it looks wild but it's planned wildness and it's a real interesting sense that actually as long as we can control nature as long as we can influence where it is and, and make sure that we have influence over it and how it stands and what it looks like actually we can like it then because it actually it's it's a picture you know it is you know something that's worth painting it gives us a lovely view of of the hills or a monument that we've constructed but we make it look old a nice folly or something um but in reality we're just lying to ourselves because it's not really like that but i think we like to think it looks like that in this kind of strange way there's a psychology to it which i don't think i have time to write about but i think it's an interesting psychology about how we view this kind of manufacturedness and perhaps we idolize it too much yeah that's there's definitely a good psychological article to be written about the sense of control that people can have over nature you what you work a lot with eco criticism don't you is what we've been talking about eco criticism i yeah i mean it's always difficult to try and fit these things into a kind of neat box category. Yeah. Um, and I think it is eco-criticism, but eco-criticism really is, um, I mean, I say an emerging field. It's been coming out since about the 1990s or so. Um, and it's about really that representation, that portrayal of nature and, and what that, that kind of means. And obviously I think the romantics are really obvious for that portrayal of nature but it's always very interesting to see about, well, is it that kind of Tennyson, you know, nature red in tooth and claw? Is it, is it you know, that really violent kind of nature, um, the dark satanic mills of, you know, of, of, of kind of William Blake? Or is it something that's much more pleasant? And, and sometimes that, that kind of juxtaposition that occurs, sometimes it's this really brutal habitat. It's, you know, the, the, the devil's last preserves are in the dark, the deepest, darkest elements of the woods. And you see that within place names of, 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 of you know, local landmarks, which are called the devil's something or the angel's this. And it's, you yes. know, we, we call, you know, the, the stacks of, of, of limestone, you know, near um, Isle of Wight, which have got like this kind of mythology surrounding why they're there and why there's this bump in the land because it was caused by, you know, the devil throwing a stone or something, you know. And there's always a really interesting aspect of how the landscape actually influences culture and, and, and our understanding. It's not just something that necessarily we, we cultivate or, or we just walk through or live in. Actually, it, it can influence a lot of the, the culture of, of our lives and why we live a certain way and, and, and the stories of how people connect and, and why this is here and why, you know, trying to explain away before science in some cases, you know, what this is and where it has come from. Um, so I think eco-criticism kind of looks at, at that nature portrayal, that natural environment and how that fits in, how we react to it, whether it's positive or negative. And, and what does that say in, in our understanding? It doesn't have to always be scientific or ecological, but just what impact that can have um and i like it because a bit like pre-raphaelites it's quite interdisciplinary you know you can bring in history and nature and science and cultural studies and 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 what have you and it kind of lets you explore nature from a kind of different angle why it's portrayed in in that kind of way or indeed the lack of nature if we talk about 
urban environments and things like that actually what does the lack of nature mean um when we take it away and what's the impact of that when we replace it with industrialization and smoke and coke town from you know charles dickens and the like you know what what is the impact of that and um there's plenty to be said on the absence of nature in 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 kind of stories and portrayals like that it all sounds very um very ruskinian if if you read a lot of ruskin in your in your works I, I've tried to. I want to do more because I've I've realised as I'm doing more research on Hopkins, there's a lot of Ruskin thoughts mm. that appear in Hopkins, and I really want to try and explore that a little bit more. So I realise I need to do a bit more self-teaching on Ruskin and try and actually work out uh, more because I, I mean I mean this is an interesting little thing to, to sort of say is that I never studied the pre-Raphaelites um, before I started the PhD. Oh, wow. um, it was never something that came up. And when I proposed the idea for the PhD, I kind of thought, well, what, what am I going to do? And I had this vision of Hopkins, I, I love Hopkins and adore Hopkins and, and Coleridge. And I wanted some, some something to go in the middle, a kind of bridge between the two. And I was doing a lot of research with different writers. And I kind of realised that I kind of wanted... To, to kind of broaden what I was saying with, with somebody else and, and, and kind of look at how that impacted. And Christina Rossetti fitted the bill, but I knew very little about her at the time. I know a bit more having researched and written on her, but it was interesting how a lot of the pre-Raphaelite stuff ended up being self-taught or reading lots of books or watching videos or attending talks or exhibitions and kind of thinking, right, I think I get it now um so yeah the rusking side i need to learn a bit more but i can definitely see the influence within some of this writing and and as you say perspectives on clouds and and yes. as you say, the landscape and i think it's really interesting but for ruskin in terms of what he's saying uh, about the environment now i think it's, it's it's really beneficial i think to that kind of research yeah i think i think he could well, I'm, I'm sure he has lent a lot to eco-criticism. It's, it's not an area I'm very familiar with, which is why I'm, I'm sort of asking you lots, lots about it. Um, but sort of Ruskin brings in a moral element to nature and um, a sense of appeal to history and tradition and, and a political impact in how nature is used and portrayed. I, ju I, I just feel like he'd, he'd be very interesting if you wanted any sort of further works on pre-raphaelitism look at his sort of wider philosophy and into how he's used nature so mm. particularly in the stones of venice he writes on the nature of gothic um and he writes about how gothic architecture springs from a, a landscape of gloomy English northern European drizzle and how it has a natural place in there as opposed to the sort of neoclassical architecture of the yes. Victorian so I think Ruskin's part of the reason along with sort of people like Pugin we have that disparity between the sort of gothic architecture and neoclassicism and in our typical fashion Jordan we've gone <laughs> off topic so <laughs> but I think sort of the use of architecture in space and architecture in the landscape it might be an interesting avenue to explore 
I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, you say we've gone off topic, but I think that's the beauty of any of these conversations, whether it's a podcast or not, is is actually it's it's having conversations with people like yourself and other PhD students or academics and 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 kind of going, oh, actually, there is something I'm missing. You know, there's a, a vital link that someone else knows about that perhaps I haven't touched upon yet and and you saying that has just made me go actually there is there is something there in 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 the kind of Hopkins side where he talks a lot about architecture and the influence of architecture he goes to churches and starts criticizing what the churches look like um particularly the gothic the 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 kind of gothic revival churches because he there's certain aspects that he really you know he you know he, he he finds quite appealing but he writes in quite disparaging um reviews of what he thinks these churches should be like he doesn't like this and doesn't like that and ends up writing to the architect to kind of say what he doesn't like about some of the churches um or in some case actually what he uh, there's a really interesting one about um William Butterfield um I think it's William Butterfield when the 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 architect um and he, he does a lot of churches and in one diary entry Hopkins is very critical of him and then we find out in the letters that he's actually writing to the architect, but actually writing really nice stuff uh, and saying how much he loves the church and how much he loves the style and that it should be more widespread. Um, but there's obviously something about how this kind of architecture does influence and inspire, and, and particularly within a kind of religious setting or in, in a ruin or, or what have you, what that what that impact is because it makes you feel something it makes you understand something it it you know you know in the church you're going in for a particular reason but when the the architecture can kind of make you feel a certain way or think a certain way or look in a certain direction you know with the the ceilings are beautiful and gorgeous your eyes are kind of immediately drawn up and what's the impact of that when you're in the church but your eyes look upwards you know and what that impact is and I think that's really quite remarkable in in kind of even just an architectural kind of sense about the impact of space and environment and what that can do to make you feel better or more connected or or fearful or or what what have you um and that's really really powerful when you start to kind of try to put that in words whether that's through criticism or through poetry um that i think is really quite interesting and I, i kind of touch upon some aspects of that um, but I think again, it, it's it's a really interesting kind of field about Ruskinian criticism, yeah. as it were. I think. Well, I think it'd be interesting to look at Christina Rossetti as well, with those sort of eyes on, because of her involvement with sort of the Oxford movement and the mm-hmm. Tractarians. And you were talking earlier about um, sort of say countryside landscapes being uh, manufactured. image and there's a sense of that in the Victorian revival churches that were built to look medieval and a lot of the actual old medieval churches and cathedrals are constructed reconstructed through the Victorians so we get a sense of yes it appears medieval but it's how the Victorians viewed the medieval period so yeah. there's a sense of being able to control the past as well as the landscape and to shape that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, is 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 that, you know, again, an idealised version or romanticised version of what 
medievalism is you know because we we construct what we think is a medieval style building or we paint what we think is a medieval style fresco or, or stained glass window or something and it's really quite fascinating of, of how this kind of elaborate decoration you know is both beautiful and, and the craftsmanship and obviously that goes into it and, and and again that's the appeal isn't it it's it's the craftsman being able to demonstrate their skill through suddenly we've got the gargoyles back on we've got this beautiful wood carving these elaborate you know gorgeous kind of um pulpits and everything else and and lecterns and and what have you um and i i think that's what you know the oxford movement is a city of of medieval buildings isn't it and but then you can see why that influence of that kind of style starts to kind of spread out and you get groups like the Cambridge Camden Society who were a kind of architectural critical group at the time who were going around these medieval churches and making notes of all the features that they really liked and then create a pamphlet to say if you're going to do medieval you know gothic revival these are the things that you have to include in your church because that's what we think of a good medieval church people just basically putting down their preferences you know we want this kind of window here and this kind of archway it's got to be so big and so you know this shape and, and everything else so it's quite interesting that people get really worked up and really personal about how things should look the aesthetics of a place um which I think is really really fascinating I think the Victorians are quite picky over over that kind of aspect that level of detail which is quite remarkable I don't think you get that really following it I know you obviously get things like the arts and crafts movement and you know even things like art deco does kind of feed into it but the level of detail and and, and recreation and and craftsmanship and and labor that the, the Victorians kind of put into stuff is it's really quite incredible for whether it's accurate or not, you know, it's, you know, how we depict it, but actually it's really quite incredible the kind of level of detail and the lengths they will go to to try and recreate something as as, as kind of vividly or as lifelike as possible. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still that sense of having the control in how landscape and buildings are shaped. I just thought it would be an interesting thing to look at alongside the landscape is is, mm. is, that, is that sense of controlling buildings and controlling how history is portrayed is yeah and i think from some of the research time and space it's <laughs> yeah and, and i think some of the research that i've done you know during part of that victorian period you get what's kind of referred to as the the construction of what are known as the waterloo churches or the commissioner churches and this was basically where they realised that the cities were growing so big that the churches, the, the existing churches, were not able to deal with that amount of people. So the, the churches were too small for the, the suddenly the big new suburbs and the sprawling kind of urbanisation. They were, they were just not big enough. So the, the commissioner churches, the Waterloo churches, were hundreds of churches that were either completely brand new, that were going to serve on a great scale these communities, or the existing churches were going to be made bigger. And the Gothic revival was, was the kind of favoured style that they used um, for those churches. And that was partly because the earlier churches from so sort of the Queen Anne period and, and, you know, that kind of early Georgian thing, they just found dull and, and really uninspiring. They were often quite square and, you know, this kind of classical style that they just felt wasn't 
wasn't what a church should be in, in this kind of strange way. And it needed to be more decorative and it needed to kind of take the church into becoming a focal point of these communities. And I think that's probably what they were trying to do. You know, the community wasn't being served by a church. Therefore, let's make it the focal point. Let's make it the tallest building in the area. Let's make it, you know, really big. You can't miss it when you drive past it. It's going to capture your eye from the minute you see it. You know, you can't help but look. And I guess in some ways that was part of the grab of that kind of construction, I think, um, to make it just so inspiring and eye-catching in, in, in that kind of way, um, as, as indeed they are to this day, you know, certain things that you can kind of walk past certain churches, but certain ones are these kind of Gothic revival, you look and you just have to keep on looking. There's just so much to kind of take in. Uh, it's just incredible. And, and and that is that is shaping the landscape, isn't it? That's that's what you're talking about. It's shaping yeah. how, how landscape is is viewed and how we appreciate certain features in the landscape over others, and how that impacts on perhaps our worldviews and our morality and our religion. Yeah, exactly. And 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 it it, it, it well obviously these were. Christian churches but it, it was very interesting that it really was trying to hit home and emphasize this idea of Christianity faith within within Britain but at the same time we, you were seeing the rise of things like Roman Catholicism um, through Catholic emancipation so that that their their kind of movement their church was growing in in in, in Britain which hadn't been you know been quite repressed for a while um, until about 1829 and then you obviously get the rise of kind of atheism and, and other kind of secular groups and things that start to rise. So actually, in some ways, were these kind of great ostentatious churches in some ways just a way of compensating to kind of say, we're still here, look at us, you know, we still have money to splash and we're still trying, you know, try and show people that we can do something. Um, but as you say, they they were really impact in the community in quite a, a kind of staggering way and still do today which I think is quite remarkable that they are some sometimes the focal points of of a community or you know all roads seem to lead towards them you know which I think is always quite remarkable they're always on the main street always kind of central locations the world moves around it it doesn't move around the world kind of thing um which I think is a really kind of fascinating way of of viewing these spaces, and some of them are still churches. Some of them, you know, are, are have been decommissioned and are no longer, but they they serve some kind of interesting visual function to um, some of these places, which I think is always quite fascinating to see even today. Yeah, they always seem to add to a, a picturesque village, don't they? You know, the exactly the church. It's it's yeah, it's like you say, it's an eye catching feature of the environment. Um, you were just talking about the rise of other sort of religious groups, sort of the rise of Roman Catholicism and atheism. I was thinking about something I've been writing on uh, quite recently, which was the sort of rise of almost paganism towards the mm. end of the 19th century and how particularly for Swinburne, who was criticised as pagan, it was always a, a, because of his constant sort of recourse to nature and how he placed nature on a pedestal above the Christian gods and above the church. And I, I think part of that was a constructed image for Swinburne. But is, is that something you've 
dealt with um almost a, a religious sense of nature yeah i mean definitely i think we've sent it with people like william wordsworth mm. there, there's a sense of I, I've never really, I, I, I always remember hearing this phrase. I don't actually know whether Wordsworth said it or not. I keep trying to look for it and I've never been able to try and work out. But I've always had this kind of image or phrase in my mind related to Wordsworth about the idea that the mountains are like cathedrals, you know, and 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 kind of what that impact, that scale, that size does. And 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 what I love about Wordsworth is 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 kind of, people struggle to to put his faith into a kind of box a category Coleridge is the same Coleridge kind of flip-flops between different religions and you know he's he's, he's Church of England then he's a Unitarian and then he's Church of England again but he's quite supernatural and quite mystical in in, in some kind of way and and the same with, with Wordsworth is that people refer to him that he's He's and he's an atheist, but then he's 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 he's, he's Anglican, or he's a Methodist, or he's an environmentalist. He's a such and such. He's a, and I think that's because he put so much emphasis on 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 kind of religion and and and, and nature and the spirituality that that kind of exists there. And and I think there's a lot to be said about groups that were rising at the time, things like the Methodists, who 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 did a lot of open air preaching. And they did a lot of open air preaching because they they kind of said, well, you don't have to be in the church or a chapel because the spirituality of God or, or whatever you like to call it is is everywhere. So every space is holy, and 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 that's the Christina Rossetti phrase. You know, Christina Rossetti writes, "Tread carefully, all the earth is holy," um, and and I think that that's kind of something that really is is a thread throughout my my research. That actually, no matter where you are there is something to be said about that construction, that, that location, because in the eyes of, of, of the, the poets, the writers I'm, I'm talking about, there is something to be seen, there's something to be felt everywhere, um, and the influence of that. And I think, yeah, they are criticised of being a bit wishy-washy, I think particularly Wordsworth and, and Coleridge, that because we can't categorise them clearly, uh, you know, as a Christian, as an Anglican, yes. as such, such, they get a little bit of stick because people go, "Well, what, what are you then? Well, you're 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 uh, some sort of environmental Methodist. You're uh, you're a Unitarian. You're uh, you're uh, you know some kind of environmentalist. You're an atheist because you seem to think that religion and that nature is more important than God and things like that." Um, I don't think I don't I'm not aware that Wordsworth was ever called a pagan, but he does have an interest in. Um, in, in things like the preludes that he writes about the um, Stonehenge and he writes about the people that came before and, and, and stuff like that. And he does have a bit of an interest there um, in kind of talking about where these stones are, are kind of a remnant of a faith, the time, a period kind of before our comprehension and, and what does that kind of mean in our understanding today when these stones are still here and the power of those stones you know not just Stonehenge but Tintin Abbey you know it's it's ruined now but what does that mean for these stones which actually predate that faith that religion these stones are actually older than that and they will weather and continue beyond us and beyond our kind of lifetime and I think when he starts talking about that and sort of beyond our kind of comprehension of linear time i think sometimes we kind of think oh 
this is a bit confusing now, I might step back from this. And I think there were a lot of people who were like that as well at the time, who were a little bit like, yeah, okay, William, can you just kind of step back from that? So I can see why people like Swinburne, the like, perhaps were criticised in a certain way. I think certain things were just beyond, maybe I'm being, you know, a bit too summative of it all but it sometimes like there were just things that are beyond people's comprehension i think it is still the case today that we don't always understand certain aspects but other people see it in such a different way in such a vibrant way um and perhaps their frustration when we can't view the world from their their kind of point of view yeah and there's a sense that the further you are away from something the more historical weight and baggage it, that comes along with it to some extent so you, you you can see that in in the medieval period and how that's portrayed through victorian eyes and how we perceive it now in the 21st century but I, i'd imagine something like stonehenge something like the sort of roman ruins in britain must carry an awful lot of baggage to to come to come along with that and and, and yeah it, it's how do people like Wordsworth make sense of that in in a society that we view as as so strictly hierarchical and religious it, it, it what what is the place of these ruins in the landscape and what should be done with them yeah and also we've you, you sort of get the rise of the national trust and organizations that seek to preserve sites like that sites of historical importance and beauty sort of towards the end of the victorian period so i imagine they were having these eco-critical space architectural conversations on quite a scale at, at that period yeah exactly i think i mean wordsworth really was preaching um you know if you want to use the term preaching about conservation and, and, and preservation and and like I said earlier the idea that he writes a poem in protest against the railways turning up in the Lake District because of, of the impact not only is it going to destroy you know trees and, and both the landscape but it's going to bring in outsider influence it's going to impact the local way of life and there is almost a fear I think you know for a lot of people about suddenly you can get to places quicker and how scary is that, that you would have to go by journey by foot or by car or by canal or what have you. And it would take days. It would take a long time. Suddenly you could get somewhere in hours, you know, and, and, and the impact that has in your kind of comprehension of temporal time and, 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 and your recollection of where you are in the world. Suddenly, actually, your, your world is a lot smaller than you think it is. And that's quite hard to, to kind of comprehend. Um, you know, journeys from London to Bristol now take, you know, two hours, whatever it is. But in the old days, it would have taken several days, a week to walk that that kind of distance. And the opportunities that opens up and, and, and the fear that actually we need to preserve what we've got then, because suddenly it isn't as big as we think it is. And it isn't, you know, and, and the fear that there was a bit of a laissez-faire kind of sense of well these stones can be reused for something else we can knock this building down and 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 move on to something else so that idea of yeah preservation and and, and the national trust i think really in some ways stem from the ideas of what wordsworth was saying about preservation and 
looking after what what's come before and there's a benefit to looking after you no know, progress is good to an extent not the way people thought that but actually we need to kind of be aware of that past and the ruins of you know Tinton Abbey, Fountain Abbey, Stonehenge are a reminder of that past that the Victorian age is quite fascinated with the ages of the, the, the tourists doing these trips and looking around these places actually there's something to be said about preserving and keeping that safe because we can always keep looking back and it just reminds us where we've come from where we are now and perhaps where we're going to um so definitely there is a benefit to the national trust and the like kind of developing those that need for preservation in, in that kind of later period of the victorians which i think is Again, we're still feeling the benefit of that land that they 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 protected, those buildings they protected, because there was always a risk that it would disappear entirely. And what a world that would be if they had gone and disappeared. Yeah, well, exactly. And, and that's I, I think this is leading up to the end of the podcast, really. But I, I was I was thinking, how relevant is eco-criticism now? It, it it's the buzzword, isn't it? Everybody is worried about climate change. We have the what I call like the extinct extinction rebellion yes yeah. you know it's really relevant research what can we learn from the victorians and the romantics and how, how can we use that in current debates that are happening now yeah exactly i think it's, it's a really interesting field to be part of and i think it obviously from people like the Victorians or even the Romantics, they weren't always thinking about this idea of climate change and perhaps the way that we do, you know, it wasn't really a thing. They didn't understand it, didn't have the technology or the, the kind of research to understand that. But just simply trying to preserve the rural way of life is kind of within the same vein because you realise that something's going to change and you will never be able to change it back. That idea of that state of nature, when we go back to people like Jean-Jacques Rousseau or Henry David Thoreau living in a cabin in the woods, you know, in, 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 in Massachusetts and, and what have you. Actually, there's a, there's, a, there's a realization that if something changes, it will never revert back to the way it used to be. And we will always want it to revert back, that kind of nostalgia you know, which is kind of a, a disease in itself of thinking or oh, everything was good in the old days and we've got to keep living back in that past kind of thing. But in reality, we know that it, once it changes, it won't go back. And I think whether that's an environmental message that people like Christina Rossetti and Hopkins and Coleridge and Wordsworth are saying, I think there is, you know, if this massive change comes in and it happens with us unaware or we don't stop it, it will change drastically to the point that we will have no control over it and uh and isn't that a shame when certain traditions and customs and even just a, a particular scene a particular view if that disappears no one's going to experience it you know hopkins does that when the trees at, near oxford get cut down the binsey poplars and he's so distraught that these trees get chopped down because the people that come after won't see that scene that he has seen you know they won't see those trees that view that he has witnessed because those trees are now gone because of, a, of what he believes is a, is a kind of thoughtless act of, of, of nature destruction. Um, the trees get chopped down and, and, and removed. And isn't that sad that someone else won't experience that same feeling, that same sensation, that same view that he has been able to witness? That's a really powerful 
way of putting it, Jordan, that <laughs> once you change it, you won't change it back. And yeah. that it, it, even if you manage to get some control over the change, it will always be a manufactured thing in hindsight and nostalgia. Yeah. It seems like a real Pandora's box, you know? It, it is. And you can start to understand why you can start to understand why some of the anxiety exists in various writing or poetry from that period where people are just a little bit, oh, something's happening and I don't really know how to feel about it or I don't really like what's happening. You know, progress isn't always good or this change has happened. I'm a little bit annoyed that this has been taken away from us or this is happening. And you can kind of get a sense why that anxiety is kind of underlying in, in various aspects because as I say you know the enclosure act stops people being able to walk across certain fields or to use certain fields and when that happens it's never going to revert back to this kind of free space that it used to be um and oh well that's that way of life has changed and you've got to move on to something else and find a new way and for some people that wasn't something they wanted to do you know so um there is an interesting kind of anxiety, I think, in the period that we researched that you kind of see people perhaps idolising a life or a way before that change happened. Pre-Raphaelite, you know, to go before that because something happened and it changed it for the worse. Let's go back and think about how things were before it was, you know, before that change happened, when it was good and when it was pure and when it was lovely and when it was... Um, a much better way of seeing things. And I think that's perhaps a message that we see repeated constantly in, in our kind of research. Yeah, well, well I, I think you've just hit the <laughs> on the head there, Jordan. That's exactly, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's pre-Raphaelites. It's always in nostalgia and hindsight and trying to recreate an age that it possibly you'll never be able to recreate truthfully. Exactly. You said that we'd go off topic, but there we are. We've managed right at the end. Bring it back. <laughs> bring it back on topic to bring back a <laughs> what, what have we covered today, Jordan? We've done quite well. We've done um, Gothic architecture, uh, morality, churches. Yeah, I think we've we covered it all. <laughs> and then got it back to the beginning again, which is great for us. It's really good. <laughs> wow, well, we, we always get back there eventually don't we <laughs> um jordan have you got anything else lined up what's your plan for the next year or two have you got any conferences works coming out where, where are you going i mean the aim now is to finish the phd and actually get it sorted and get it finished um so that's kind of the driving aim and and it will be really interesting from that to see what opportunity i'd love to develop some of this research into journal articles um and try and contribute it to various things um and to see where where there is ways to take it further and 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 to and to explore that i think with our kind of field of research you're never done researching there's always more that you can do and i think the phd is good but once you kind of reach that 75,000 80,000 words or whatever that limit is you kind of go I could do with a little bit more to kind of make it further. So I think there'll be some thoughts about over the next year or so about next steps um, and and where I end up going, you know, future career progression or opportunities or jobs or or research. So um, it's an open book at the moment, but we will see what happens next. 
Jordan, it sounds wonderful. It's always a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Oh, not a problem. Anytime. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please visit our website at www.preraphelitesociety.org.uk. You can also now find us on Twitter and Facebook if you just do a search for the Pre-Raphaelite Society podcast. Uh, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. <laughs>